Welcome to Healthcare Experience Matters. This podcast is brought to you by the Healthcare Experience Foundation and is dedicated to transforming the healthcare experience so that every person can receive and deliver the best care. We invite you to learn more by visiting healthcareexperience.org. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Healthcare Experience Matters. We have two guests on the podcast today, Dr. Rachel Lipner. She's the medical director of inpatient medicine. She's a hospice and palliative medicine physician with Transitions Life Care in Raleigh, North Carolina. And I also have with us Meredith Jones. She's the director of family support services with Transitions Life Care in Raleigh, North Carolina. And I'm going to have Dr. Lipner, introduce herself right now and just tell us a little bit about her role with Transitions Life Care. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Um, as the medical director of inpatient palliative medicine for Transitions, I lead our large interdisciplinary palliative care consultant team, which serves a urban multi-hospital healthcare system providing inpatient palliative care consults to the three hospital system. Our team consists of physicians, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, social workers, and nurses. And Meredith, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you do with Transitions Life Care? Yeah, thank you, Casey, for having us. My role is the Director of Family Support Services, and so I'm primarily responsible for helping support uh, the social work department, spiritual care department, volunteer services, and then bereavement center. Um, and so we're typically in the homes of patients or in facility uh, settings, providing end-of-life care support. I do want to jump into today's discussion where we're going to be talking a lot about the different ways we're supporting each other and supporting different team members in this unprecedented time of COVID-19 and all the different adjustments that have needed to be made. So today's topic is focusing on how to best support our workforce with these coping strategies. And it's going to be surrounding the topic of death and dying. So how has your perspective on this topic changed from pre-pandemic to now and this topic of supporting each other? You know, what has shifted from, say, February 2020 to where we stand now in the fall of 2021. And I will let whoever wants to hop on that one first, go ahead and answer. I'll start. So, you know, in hospice and palliative medicine, we're very big on supporting each other and supporting our colleagues because our work is so driven by tough discussions and end of life situations on a daily basis. So that part was pretty routine to us. I think the way it's really changed is supporting each other more because there's been a lot more death and dying than even our team is used to, um, as well as in the hospital system, supporting our colleagues. We've had a lot of colleagues in the hospital system who are just not used to the amount of critically ill patients, the amount of deaths on a frequent basis. And they look to our team because our team, you know, is the specialist in it to, to be a sounding board and someone that they can trust in to feel comfortable expressing their emotions surrounding the stress they feel for the circumstances. Meredith, did you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I think Dr. Lepner captures, you know, death and dying isn't necessarily new. I think what's happened during the pandemic is the layers of losses just really continue to to stack up. 
And so we have people navigating not just the personal experiences in their work environment, but also what may be happening in their home environment. Um, and some of the things that our team members are having to, to do is, is to some degree creating a, a higher degree of moral distress, having to set uh, limitations on visitors um, who are trying to be present with their loved ones as they're nearing the end of life. Those kinds of things have been really difficult um, and certainly have added a layer of complexity to the work we're doing. And for team members that may be struggling out there, thinking about not just those working in palliative care and hospice, maybe just expanding this to all healthcare workers around the country and maybe the world. Do you have advice for for people that may be struggling right now with what's going on? I guess I can go first on this, Dr. Lipner. Um, you know, I don't know that there's um, magic advice to, to give to anybody or, or some, you know, uh, saying that will take this away. I think, you know, what we have encouraged our team members to do is to really try to stay in the moment. Um, to try not to think too far ahead. The situation that you may find yourself in when you look at it in the totality may be really overwhelming. Um, and so oftentimes just encouraging people to try to stay in the moment, take it, what, what's what's the next thing that I need to be doing and to really allow yourself to be in that moment. Oftentimes quality care really involves sort of setting aside other things that may be weighing in your mind and really allowing your focus to be on, on the person and the individual in front of you. And so I feel like in some ways that's really helpful. However, that compartmentalizing isn't necessarily a good thing long-term. So as much as we encourage people to stay in the moment, you know, we have a tendency to kind of compartmentalize what we've just experienced and run into the next situation. Um, and so I think that the guidance I would give to folks would be really to just pause yourself and really allow yourself to even acknowledge like what just happened? You know, what am I experiencing? What, what feelings did that bring up for me? Um, whether you're setting a limit with someone or having to convey really difficult information, you're not just having your own feelings, but you're also having to hold space for their feelings. And I think as helping professionals, we tend to um, tune into what other people are needing before maybe we're really even tuning into what we may be needing. So I think my greatest guidance is to listen to that inner voice and take time to hear it. Dr. Libner, did you want to add anything to that? Sure. I would just echo everything that Meredith says. I think one thing that our team has really focused on is work-life balance, which has always been something that we have focused on because of the hard work that we do, but really trying to bring you know positive things that are happening in our life outside of work to the forefront of our discussions during daily team rounds, ensuring that the expectations are very clear that there will always be work for the next day, but that's okay. And it's, you know, when it's time to be done for the day, we stop, we get home to our lives outside the hospital um, and do the same with all of our colleagues as well. I, most of my day is walking around saying hi to people and asking them how their family's doing or what they did this past weekend. And the sigh of relief people have of talking about something that's not work or pandemic related. It's just an immense relief for people. Yeah, I really like that. There will always be work for the next day. I have to tell myself that often. It it's really applicable to a lot of things. You know, you just want to part of you just wants to finish it all in one day, but that's simply not realistic for so many things, um, even beyond the healthcare environment. What are some best practices you've learned in hospice that you can offer the acute care workforce to aid in personal resilience? You know, for, for me, I, I try to encourage people to focus on what they're able to do, not necessarily what they couldn't achieve. You know, there's always going to be greater needs sometimes than we have an ability to meet. So really trying to 
to allow yourself to take credit, to celebrate those small victories, to really own them um, and to rejoice in them. And it can be something as simple as allowing yourself to take pride in the fact that you sat still and held somebody's hand, that you took a moment maybe after death to not just think about that person, but to maybe even just spend a moment and think about um, those others that may be impacted by their loss, that, that family member or that neighbor that may be impacted. So I think some of personal resiliency is about just sort of celebrating all the little ways that you're able to make a meaningful difference and and holding space for people. So that's physically being present and they know that you're there or times where you're just really holding people in your thoughts. That part of us that really wants to give back and that really wants to feel connected to the work that we're doing. Sometimes when you get caught up in the monotony of the day or hearing really difficult things over and over again, you can lose kind of connection to really the meaning of the work. Um, and so I think that that for me is one, is really just maintaining that. Taking time for yourself, self-care, you know, that's so easy to say, but many of us are really lousy at engaging in it. And so, you know, if it's exercise, if it's, you know, um, I would say know what anchors you. If it's a faith perspective, you really have to kind of think of how does my cup get filled back up? And I might be an intentional making time for those things that I know I need. Um, and then not to be afraid to pull energy back for yourself. I know that it's really easy to be here when you're on an airplane, you know, put your mask on first, something mm-hmm. that many people kind of reference, but it's very, very hard to prioritize your own needs over potentially the needs of others. So I think especially in a helping profession, really allowing yourself to um, listen and, and stay in tune to those things are really, really helpful. Something I think about and often a phrase I use when I meet people is oftentimes patients or family members aren't necessarily happy that our team has been asked to be involved, but hopefully after they've spent time talking to us and learning how we can be helpful, they're actually really thankful for our involvement. And I would apply that very broadly during the pandemic is that we're all still doing really good work. We're all working really hard. And even if we're not getting the outcome that maybe we've hoped for, we are, are doing good work. And even when we're sharing bad news, we're we're doing it in a compassionate way that's, that's preventing suffering down the road. So reminding each other and our colleagues that, that just because the outcome may not be what we want or what our patients or families want, it doesn't take away from all of the valuable, you know, evidence-based medicine work that we've been doing throughout this past year and a half. I want you to talk with us about some strategies that you've personally used for supporting patients and families during this life-changing experience. And I want to focus the answer, if you could, on the hospital setting specifically. I'm happy to start. I think the biggest thing that we've done is we've gotten pretty good, really fast at telehealth um, and connecting people with technology. And the biggest impact we've seen is our ability in the hospital system to connect, especially our patients who are on isolation with their family members through audiovisual communication. That's been a lifesaver for our patients and family members who feel so disconnected, so scared, you know, either from the patient end or from the family end, because they can't be next to the the people they love during this very hard time. Um, that has extended beyond to the ability of healthcare workers to really loop in people across the country, across the globe for really important discussions via audiovisual um, communications and meetings. So I think our ability to quickly pick up and learn how to do that has, is something that's here to stay and a resource that's going to continue beyond the pandemic because it's, it's added a way of connecting people, even though we're not able to be in person. 
I think Dr. Lipner did a great job of highlighting the ways in which telehealth really has been a game changer. And I also know that not as it just using telehealth, but really learning how to effectively use it, taking just that moment or two to ask a little bit about, tell me about your loved one before I moved in to the discussion that we might be at hand. Some of those things to really help create that uh, rapid bonding or rapid development of rapport, I think has become really essential to our um, building trust when we're not able to sit face-to-face with folks. I want to ask more about advice and tips. So do you have any tips for interpersonal conversations when you see a peer that's struggling? Yeah. You know, for me, by the time I'm recognizing that someone's struggling, um, it's pretty evident. So they're likely in tune to the fact that something's going on for them. So, you know, I prefer to just be directed. Maybe part of that's my personality. But if I see someone struggling, instead of asking something that's sort of open and like, hey, are you okay? I think it's really easy for people to just give a sort of surface answer back to that. But, you know, to be able to say to someone, I I noticed in this meeting, you were quieter than you normally are, or your energy seems to be a little bit depleted. You know, I'm all ears, you know, is there something that I can, um, you know, is there a part of what you're you're feeling with or, or going through that you might be comfortable sharing with me? Um, and just really giving people that opportunity and then really sitting still to listen to the answer without feeling like you have to try to fix it. Um, I think that's the key to supporting colleagues is not necessarily feeling like you have to hold the answers to what will make it better, but really just allowing that space for wherever they're at. I can say that during the pandemic, a lot of what people may be holding really isn't work-related. And so that balance of trying to maintain that, that boundary of how personal worlds um, whether they're caring, you know, for a loved one at home or have, you know, an aging family member that's in a nursing home and they haven't had this much access or they're trying to homeschool their kids. Um, there's been, you know, losses of income from people. And so depending on, you know, where they're, they're coming from, there's a lot that, that people could be holding. So when you ask that question, to simply be prepared that it may be a fuller answer than we typically might see when we're, we're really focusing on our workspace. Do you have any practical suggestions for coping, supporting patients and families and the care team? Yeah, Dr. Lipper, I, I, you know, this is a, how do you support one another? I think some of the things we've, we've highlighted in terms of really taking an active interest in your peers um, is certainly part of it. I personally believe that rituals, one of the things that I think we do well in hospice is to really look at how to ritualize loss. Um, coming up with ways, there's different places that we do different things. But um, I think for some of our team members, they really do um, do sort of ribbon tyings where they really uh, will name and identify the person who has passed and maybe admire a quality that that person has and sort of weave them together so that in the end you have sort of this tapestry of sort of beautiful ribbons that really represents lives well lived and people that care for them. And just that act of kind of making some of that space in our hospice home where people may come and Um, die fairly quickly, we'll have an honor guard where people will sort of um, quietly kind of just stop what they're doing and pause um, and allow for the deceased to kind of exit the building that way. Those things may not always be applicable in a hospital setting where that's happening, but trying to find those small ways of stilling yourself. I know for me personally, for a long time, I collected sort of uh, stones that I kind of um, collected a stone for my loved one, or even sometimes patients or families that really just for whatever reason had an impact on me. Um, And then I didn't typically dispose of them 
you know, one at a time the way I had envisioned, but usually once a year, I'll take a trip that's really meaningful for me. And I'll find a way of sort of honoring those or releasing those um, out back into to nature. And that's always just been a way that I feel like I honor my work. Um, so I think everyone has a slightly different way that they may do that. I and mean, Dr. Lipner, have you heard or practiced anything yourself? Yeah, so similarly, our, our team has created a ritual where every Friday we name um, all of our patients who have died in the hospital that week, which obviously has dramatically increased certain weeks during the pandemic. And naming them just like the ritual and hospice to honor to honor their lives and our team's involvement is really therapeutic. And it gives an opportunity for the team to talk about, you know, maybe things that weren't necessarily related to their medical illness, but, oh, did you know such and such served in World War II? You know, g- giving honor to our to our patients' lives. I think me personally, the way I cope best is my drive to and home and to and from work is kind of my decompression time where I get an opportunity to think through everything that I've done that day and my patients I've taken care of. And by the time I get home, I have an opportunity to kind of reset my brain, turn my mind into, you know, mom mode, wife mode, and really just ensure that I can, I can get to, to other things versus those patients that you sometimes carry with you. And if you don't have an opportunity to digest your day, you don't have the opportunity, like you talked about earlier, Meredith, where you have that separation of work and life. This work that you are both involved in on your, in your daily lives is is hugely important. And I just want to know what attracted you to this line of work? What was the calling that you felt um, that you wanted to be a part of this work? Um, I can go first. So I actually thought I was going to be a reproductive endocrinologist, which does ironically the exact opposite thing, brings babies into this world. Um, But I found through all my training and my experience taking care of patients that in general, the healthcare system is kind of pushing towards less time with patients and family members so that you can see more patients to, you know, increase your earnings. And that wasn't the style of medicine that I wanted to practice. So I remember distinctly as a, a resident, I, I was on a palliative care rotation and I got to talk with this gentleman about whether or not he wanted a, a feeding tube. And I was in there for an hour and his conversations were it was just the most interesting conversation that that I had ever had up to that point, all about whether he liked to eat or whether he wanted a feeding tube. And I remember leaving the room and I was like, wow, this is, this is what doing drugs feels like. I'm on the top of the world. And I remember telling my co-residents who were taking care of the patient, they're like, whatever, Rachel, like, is the patient getting a feeding tube or not? And I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand. I had this like transcendent conversation with this man where he was able to make his own decisions and decide that he didn't want a feeding tube. And they're like, okay, great. He doesn't want a feeding tube moving on. Like, no one else seemed to understand how amazing and empowering this conversation was clearly for me, but also for the patient, because we sat and we talked and he, you know, was empowered to make his own decisions. And after that, I was kind of hooked. I, I really just needed to keep being involved in these really, really important conversations that may take a little extra time, but their value can't be measured in time. They, they, they're these people's lives and their quality of life. Yeah, for for me, you know, I had uh, some early in life um, experiences with loss that I think really highlighted for me how difficult it is for a society to really address and acknowledge um, death and dying. No, really. So I think at first it was really this pulling to, to kind of help people to be able to have language to use around loss that really attracted me to the work. I can say that I covered for somebody um, that was out on a maternity leave and had the opportunity to go into the home setting in in a hospice uh, situation. And in that particular visit, there was um, 
a mother who was preparing to say goodbye to not just her husband, but her children and had quietly kind of sat with me and said, you know, I felt like there'd be more tears. I thought people would be crying and really grieving for my loss. And they all seem to be doing really, really well. When just a few minutes before out in the you know living room area, they were all just a sobbing mess. And I had this opportunity to kind of bring them together and really allow them to kind of share in what was happening for each of them and not feeling this desire to protect one another. And I feel like that has what's kept me in the work. It's just this ability to bring about a healing and opportunity that, um, that really just kind of speaks to your soul. Um, and I think that, that that was a really transformative moment. A lot like Dr. Lipner, where you have this like, ah, it was really just an amazing feeling leaving like I made that difference. So I think what drove me to the work and really what has kept me in the work has been really different. There's something about the way that our brains work that we we enjoy we enjoy what we do every single day. I had a medical student in fellowship follow me around for a day, and at the end, you know, we were getting ready to leave. I was like, "What questions do you have for me?" And she looked looked at me and said, "How do you walk around all day and make people cry? How do you do that all day?" And I it took me aback because I had never thought about it that way. And my my response to her, which is what I tell people if they ask me something similar now, is the work and effort that I put into having really open and honest conversations, if they do cause tears, that's not my intent. My intent is to prevent suffering in the future or to prevent hardship in the future that we can prevent by having these conversations more proactively. Um, And obviously my work is slanted towards goals of care conversations in an inpatient hospital setting. But as Meredith said, these conversations don't end even when someone makes a decision for comfort and hospice. It's all part of the journey and it's just... It's just a pleasure to be a part of that journey with our patients and family members. What a powerful discussion we've been having today on the Healthcare Experience Matters podcast. I want to thank our guests, Dr. Rachel Lipner. She's the Director of Inpatient Medicine. She's a hospice and palliative medicine physician. And Meredith Jones, Director of Family Support Services. They are both with Transitions Life Care in Raleigh, North Carolina. And I'm going to give them the final word. If either of you have any final thoughts, please provide us with anything else you feel is valuable to discuss about your team members' pandemic response that we haven't touched on yet. For me, I just like to thank the team members. I feel like there's uh, this has been very difficult work. It's always been difficult work, but especially during this pandemic and the resilience and the spirit they have shown has been inspiring. Um, I really uh, tip my hat to, to each and every one of them. They are, they're an amazing group of people doing amazing work. And I'm sure that that's echoed from, from many, many others who have the privilege of really leading just a diverse workforce. I would agree. I would just say that to all of us who have been through this, especially in the acute hospital side, I think it's just further proven, you know, that this is a calling what we do and, and coming into the hospital and taking care of critically ill patients we do it willingly and happily. And it's just an honor and a pleasure, regardless of of what the situation is. It may be hard at times, but it doesn't, it's not hard to get up in the morning and come to the hospital and work with great colleagues who have the same vested interest and, and take care of our patients and family members. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Healthcare Experience Matters. Healthcare Experience Matters is brought to you by the Healthcare Experience Foundation. To learn more, please visit healthcareexperience.org. That's healthcareexperience.org.